greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Sarah Gailey. Now, Sarah has written a book called The Echo Wife, which is a little bit of a mystery and a little bit of a sci-fi uh, and a lot interesting. Uh, so I'm going to talk to them about that, and you can decide if it's something that interests you. Uh, but before we get to the interview with Sarah, I do need to remind you that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and dirtier end of the spectrum. If you like your crime fiction gritty, then this is the publisher for you. You can find out more at their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's Down and Out Books, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. All right. Well, let's not keep Sarah waiting. Let's jump straight into this interview with Sarah Gailey. Well, hello, Sarah, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad that we're talking. Uh, we had a little uh, technical issues getting up and running, but we're uh, we're, we're striding strong now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, technical issues up front are how you know that you're going to end up with a good podcast. You get to bond through <laughs> adversity. Certainly get it out of the way early. You know, this is a, a show that that largely focuses on crime fiction, extending out into the associated subgenres like thrillers, which I think The Echo Wife uh, definitely fits in that among other genres. But it's interesting to me that if if one looks at your body of work, um, you've done a lot of work in what I think people would call fantasy and sci-fi. Uh, fair statement. Absolutely, yeah. And I grew up on that. I love that. Um, it's it's uh, near and dear to my heart, which is is why I've been excited to talk uh, to you today. Um, and one of the earlier works that is mentioned is uh, River of Teeth. Yeah. Now, yes. now here is an interesting idea because it's uh, and, and I'll let you fill in the broad strokes of it, but it, it is a kind of an alternate history almost fantasy and sci-fi in a way could fill the the listeners in on what river of teeth is actually about and how much of it is factual and how much of it is is springing from the uh creative well of your mind yes um so river of teeth is an alternate history pulp western uh, about an america that almost happened so in the united states there was a period of time during which we were very seriously debating importing hippopotami and basically ranching them in the Mississippi River to try to solve the problem of the invasive water hyacinth, which is a flower that was choking off the river at a time when that river was really crucial to U.S. trade. We were also facing down a meat shortage. And so some geniuses said, well, here are two birds, one hippo. Um, let's bring <laughs> hippopotami in. They'll eat the water hyacinths. We'll eat the hippos. What could go wrong? And this actually came to a vote. It was called the Hippo Bill. It was incredibly popular. People were very excited about it. There were ads for, you know, you should look forward to eating lake pig bacon in uh, was the New York Times. And this failed to pass into law, the law that would cause us to start importing hippos by one vote, just one vote in Congress. And so I learned about this and I thought to myself, well, that was a near miss because as many people know now, as the internet has started talking about this more and more, hippopotami are terrifying. It, it's like if an SUV wanted to kill for fun. Um, <laughs> they murder just because they don't have much else to do. They 
they eat crocodiles, they eat people. This happens all the time. And I know what you're thinking. Aren't hippos obligate herbivores? Aren't, aren't their bodies only built to eat plants? And while that's true, try telling a hippo that. They don't care. They have been <laughs> several times observed in the wild. This is a, a well-known thing among field biologists. They've been observed just eating meat because they feel like it. And then they get pretty sick. And, you know, I, I would judge, but um, that's kind of how I feel about Totino's pizza rolls. My body isn't made for those either. <laughs> I, I, don't have quite, I don't have quite the same bloodlust when I see a Totino's pizza roll as a hippo does when it sees an alligator or a crocodile. But, uh, you know, we're probably not that far apart. So anyway, River of Teeth is a book about what might have happened if we had decided to import hippos. I bumped the entire thing back a ways because I wanted to write it as a pulp Western. So instead of that bill being discussed in the early 1900s, it's discussed shortly after the American Civil War. And by the time of the book, the predictable outcome has occurred. What happens when you introduce a, you know, <laughs> violent megafauna into an ecosystem and what has in fact happened in Central American waterways as a result of Pablo Escobar's uh, zoo hippos being released into the wild, which is that the hippos have gone feral, taken over the waterways, uh, and decimated the local ecosystem. At the same time, it's a book about a heist, a group of ne'er-do-wells who have been hired to pull off one big job that'll make them all a lot of money. I kind of stuck all my favorite genres in a blender, and this is the resultant hippo-laced smoothie. <laughs> and that's not uncommon in 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 the sci-fi and fantasy realm. Uh, mashup is is a little bit more of a common uh, route to to story than say in your you know standard thriller or or even crime fiction. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, not to get too much on my favorite soapbox about this, but genres are are at their heart a marketing tool. They're a way to mm -hmm. tell customers here's what part of the bookstore you go to to find the thing you're looking for. And I personally am an, a nemesis of taxonomy and categorization. And so in everything that I write, I love to say, you know, genre is for the marketing team to figure out. I'm just going to write the story that I'm interested in. <laughs> the novelist um, E.P. Guthrie said something that I try to hang on to whenever I'm writing, which is that the thing that creates brilliant fiction is a constant element of surprise. You need to always be delivering something at least slightly unexpected. Mm -hmm. And if you bring someone into a book that seems to be an alternate history, and then it's a pulp Western, and then you say, surprise, there's also a heist, you get happier readers, I think. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation because I mean, genre readers sometimes are very protective of the tropes of their genre. And I, I know a lot of writers who, I, I mean, I lean toward very heavily into your viewpoint, but a lot of writers that I know are at the other end of the spectrum where they, where they say, you know, there are rules for this genre and you have to follow these rules. And I always bridle at that. I'm like, there's no rules for a good story. Don't tell me there has to be a happy ending just because there's a romance. And I've always kind of had problems with that. Now, a good friend of mine who writes paranormal romance, um, you know, she kind of simmered me down a little bit when she said, don't think of them as rules. Think of them as reader expectations. And in some cases, you want to meet those expectations. Otherwise, they're going to be disappointed readers and they're going to hate your guts. And so I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'll buy that. But that doesn't mean I'm still going to play by the expectations, you know. 
Yeah, I think for me, I also, as soon as someone says, here's a rule you have to follow, I, I mean, I'm a little criminal at heart, so I say absolutely not. But I, I feel like the key is just bringing the reader along with you. If the reader feels betrayed and, mm-hmm. you know, like like you've pulled the rug out from under them, um, they'll have a bad time, which I think a lot of a lot of people have fallen into the trap of doing that after the success of Game of Thrones, which, mm-hmm. you know, book one has this big twist at the end, the person who you think is going to be the protagonist of the whole series gets killed and you go, whoa, that's really wild and unexpected. But the secret of that being successful is that as a reader, you're brought to that point along with the story. It's not just all of a sudden someone pulls a fish out from behind their back and slaps you in the face with it and says right. comedy. <laughs> yeah. And the, the subversion of your expectations, uh, not only, as you mentioned, has been fairly, the groundwork's been fairly laid, but it's not just there to say, look, we surprised you. You know, I mean, I think Game of Thrones is a great example. I felt like by the end of that series, the showrunners were actually betraying the foundation in some cases and the characters uh, you know, simply to subvert expectations. And that resulted in a great deal of dissatisfaction. Yeah, I've been seeing this kind of um, worrying trend among some series writers where they will kind of look at what fans are saying they expect from the series and what fan predictions are. And then the writers will try to subvert that by rewriting the direction that they were initially going to make it so that it'll be surprising, which I think is kind of an ultimate betrayal going into fan spaces and seeing people who've been engaging with your work well enough that they are picking up what you're putting down. They can see where you're headed and then saying, well, now I'm now I'm not going to do it. That's what you get for being engaged with the work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it destroys all the foundational work that you've done, all the foreshadowing, all the character development. You know, I mean, it's like building a road, right? And and, I mean, it's headed somewhere. And if all of a sudden you say it's headed somewhere else, uh, you might get a road there, but it's not going to be the same nice four lane highway, you know, with plenty of rest stops. It's going to be a crappy dirt road that nobody wants to take. And and that's a terrible metaphor, but you kind of get what I'm saying, right? (laughs) It works. So, I mean, we talked about mashing up uh, subgenres a little bit, not playing within the rules, um, which I'm a big fan of. And and your latest work, Echo Wife, would seem to fall right into that uh, realm in that it's a domestic thriller with some uh, science fiction elements to it. Tell us a little bit about that, because even just the description right away, you know, it's it's not your typical thriller by any means. Um. It's so interesting to me to see what genre people categorize this book as, depending on where they're coming from. If you are usually a thriller reader, I tend to hear it's a thriller with elements of sci-fi. If you're usually a sci-fi reader, I tend to hear it's science fiction with elements of thriller. Horror readers get it right on the nose. Horror readers are like, no, this is a horror novel. And I'm like, good, (laughs) good, good, good work. My favorite is um, people who tend to read kind of, Michael Crichton-esque like science thrillers Mm -hmm. uh, or who read a lot of nonfiction or who are laboratory scientists tend to describe it as a a dark comedy, which I love (laughs) because all of the science in this book is completely made up. And so, you know, I'll talk to thriller readers who are like, oh, I really enjoyed how grounded the science seemed. And then I'll talk to scientists who are like, this is hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) 
Just goes to show you people, you know, have their expertise and are a little bit, a little bit blind to things that aren't in their wheelhouse, you know, but it's good that you, I mean, yeah, you can't fool the scientists. I would hope not. I would be scared for our science uh, if if that were the case, (laughs) but the fact that you could fool the non-scientists and actually make them feel like it was very well grounded, real science, that's some good writing. Oh, terribly gratifying. When, when I went into writing this book, I knew that I wanted to have the science sound re- like it could exist, but not be based on anything that actually exists. Because the, the timeline of publishing is such that a book I'm writing now won't be out for another two, two and a half years. And so, you know, writing The Echo Wife, I was like, well, if I base any of the science in this on research that's happening today, then by the time it comes out, that research could have gone in a different direction than I try and take it. And I can end up hearing from a lot of scientists saying you got everything wrong, which is like my least favorite thing. So instead, I decided to just completely invent it. I was, I I had the best time with it. And the fact that some people will ask me, wow, you know, how, how much research did you do? All this science sounds really like you you looked into a lot of things very deeply is incredibly gratifying i feel like i've pulled off a con <laughs> so evan evelyn caldwell is your protagonist uh in this book and she's a scientist and she's done something interesting that it's almost a uh, Mary Shelley esque in a way <laughs> that she <laughs> she's done something that has uh caused her some consternation Yeah, so Evelyn Caldwell is a brilliant scientist who has pioneered a method for adult duplicative cloning. And what that means is that I've got one Frank in front of me, and then I go science, and I've got another one in a test tube full of goo, fully formed, um, exact duplicate with a few notable exceptions. And Evelyn's method has won her scientific acclaim. She has a thriving career that she values above anything else, including her marriage, which is part of why she and her husband are getting divorced. The other part of why they're getting divorced is because Evelyn has discovered that her husband has been having an affair with a clone of her who he created (laughs) to be more docile and compliant than she has ever been. Is that actually an affair? I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, it's you can describe it a lot of ways. On the jacket copy, we call it an affair. Uh, I also might call it a heinous crime against all possible morality. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not her, It's not like she's, he's having an affair with her twin sister. So what, what is... <laughs> you know... <laughs> Oh, that's <laughs> wow. much worse. So uh, uh, did he, but she created the clone or he, or he did? He did. He, he oh, created he did. the clone by stealing her technology. Oh, all right. Well, that's okay. I thought, I, I misunderstood. I thought she created the clone and then while she was busy sciencing other stuff, he, he had an affair with her. So that, to me, that was a little less heinous. Um, oh no, it, it, believe me, it's much worse. It, and it just keeps getting worse the more you learn. Well, I mean, it's no secret since it's also in the description. Um, the quote, cheating bastard, unquote, which is a fair description, I think, uh, is dead. And now both uh, Evelyn and the uh, the clone, Martine, um, are, are, they have a mess to clean up. They have to take, take care of business. Um, and it says that Evelyn Caldwell is used to getting her hands dirty. Is there something in her background that, that, uh, that you're referring to there? Or is she just that kind of a person who's just able to handle whatever comes her way? I will tell you that both of those 
both of those guesses are accurate, but uh, <laughs> we're getting into deep spoiler territory. Okay. So I won't say more. No, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen at all. It's it's a it's a really cool premise. I mean, we want to avoid spoilers, obviously. But uh, and you said you made up a lot of the uh, of the science, but the concept, this idea of somebody whose work is stolen and and then replicated for nefarious reasons, and then you know the the husband then is killed. I mean, was this something that came to you like, oh, you're in the shower and pop, there it is, and <laughs> you got to get out with soapy fingers and jot it down real quick, or is this something that uh, uh, you know kind of evolved over time from one smaller concept or, or take us through the, that a little bit, if you would be willing to. Yeah. So I, I always hesitate to say that something just came to me because, you know, there's always a million little ingredients that get inside of your brain and ferment over time. Right. So I had a short story that I wrote a long time above, ago about clones that wasn't very good. And so I was kind of like, okay, well, I'll sit on this. Maybe I'll come back to it and edit it. And I just sort of never got around to it. And Magic for Liars was, you know, like in the tank, the the publisher had it and they wanted to know what I was going to write next. And I put together this pitch for this epic fantasy series that I was very excited about. And uh, then went to visit Portland where I needed to find an apartment to move into um, as I was beginning the process of my own divorce from a man who, and I say this in every single place that I talk about this book is nothing like the ex-husband and the ex-wife. <laughs> that ex-husband is not based on my ex-husband. My ex-husband was a very nice man, no connections, no similarities. <laughs> I just, I, I feel the need to make sure that's clear. Um, and so I was in Portland where my literary agent happened to live at the time. And my, my literary agent kind of helped me look around the city find my bearings and then said, okay, we need to sit down. We need to have a business conversation and took me to this lovely little pub, bought a pitcher of beer and a big pile of tater tots and said, okay, this isn't going to be a fun conversation for you, but we need to have it. So don't worry. I'm with you all the way. I'm going to, we're just going to sit here until we've figured this thing out. And I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen? What, what kind of trouble am I in? And my agent says, the publisher and I spoke and we feel that epic fantasy is the wrong direction given what you're right, what you've been writing so far. So we need to come up with something else. And I said, okay. And were you crushed? I mean, not at all. Um, oh, really? Because my agent said that. And I said, okay, do I have to write in the same genre? Um, I'm very, I'm very, uh, fickle's not quite the right word, but I don't like writing the same thing multiple times. I like mm -hmm. jumping around from place to place. And my agent said, no, you don't have to write the same genre. And I said, great. I want to write a science fiction book about a woman whose husband cloned her to have a less threatening version of her. And she finds out about the affair and then the clone kills the husband and they have to cover up the murder together. And uh, my agent looked at me and was like, how long have you had this idea? And I said about 10 seconds. And my agent said, okay, well, who's going to drink all this beer? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, you've had three tater tots. There's a whole pile here. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, I mean, there were a million pieces, right? Of course, going through my own divorce, left me in a situation where I was moving to a new city. I didn't know hardly anybody. And I was having to figure out who I was when I wasn't being defined by the expectations of everyone around me. That's a huge theme in this book, but that's not a plot. No, um, that's a thing. I was, yeah. I was interested in clones. That's not a plot either. All of this sort of just, it, it sort of just set like jello salad in my head all at once when my agent said, you need a new book idea. And 
it it was just a moment of miraculous inspiration that I don't think I will ever accomplish again. <laughs> well, and it panned out. I mean, the Echo Wife is is uh, is out. It's available. It's uh, you know part of the world now. So it went from that Jello uh, substance to uh, you know paper and and digital pages. A real book. Who knew? A real book. It's interesting. Divorce is an interesting topic because. I don't think people realize who haven't ever been divorced that even an amicable divorce is pretty stressful. It's pretty difficult. It's never, I mean, I guess maybe for some people, you know, it could be pretty cut and dried, no no problem. But even an, an amicable divorce can be a tough gig because, you know, I mean, it's it's a failure. It's a failure of a commitment and a relationship. And you feel, at least I did, I, you know, uh, had, had a very amicable divorce and yet it's still, I was still depressed, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. still felt like crap and still, I mean, you know, it didn't last nearly as long as if I'd had my heart broken or something, I'm sure. But uh, anyone who, who hasn't been through that, um, you know, probably can't quite understand why you would have been in the place that you were at at the moment that this happened. Yeah, I ended up, uh, I I'm, was born and raised in California in the Bay Area. I'm back in California now, but I took what I now refer to as my exile year in Portland to just process because there's no real way to explain what happens when the entire plan that you had for the entire rest of your life has to change on a dime. All of a sudden, even if even if the marriage has been in trouble for a while, the moment that you decide, okay, this marriage is not going to be part of my life anymore is a moment of tremendous upheaval and a moment when you've got to re-examine everything that was connected to it, which if you're married the way that I was, is everything. Everything is tied into the central relationship in your life. And it, it's harrowing and transformative. I'm glad that I did it. I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I hadn't gone through that awful, awful time. And the book wouldn't be the book that it is if I haven't gone through that awful, awful time. I wrote The Echo Wife in, I wrote the first draft in about six weeks in my little space pod of an apartment in Portland where I didn't know anybody. And I was basically waking up, eating a very sad, like Trader Joe's salad breakfast, writing the book all day for, you know, usually 12 to 14 hours. And then heading down to the bar down the street so that I could see people who weren't my own reflection. And it's uh, it's not an easy way to live. It's not an easy way to be, but it can also be really vital and necessary for becoming the person you're going to be on the other side of this big transition period. Well, take away the trip down to the bar and you've basically got the COVID lockdown. And so <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Evelyn, she goes through that uh, incredible moment you know, very abruptly with the murder happening. So uh, it's it's thrust upon her unplanned. Yeah, I kind of said, okay, what could make this impossible moment even worse? <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing it was coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, folks, the book is The Echo Wife uh, by Sarah Gailey. Uh, it is out now. It sounds wonderful. I am really looking forward to getting a chance to read it. And I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Yeah, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for having me.
All right, folks, there you are, Sarah Gailey and the Echo Wife. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, I'm very fascinated by science fiction since I grew up on it. And even though mystery and crime fiction is where I spend most of my time now, I still go in for the fantasy and the sci-fi intermittently. And uh, Sarah's book is uh, next up on my list after I finish this this, uh, history book that I'm reading that my uh, oldest got me for my birthday back in August. So if you find it as interesting as I do, give Sarah's book a try. Next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Spencer Flurry. Zafiro update for you. I just want to remind you that uh, book seven in the River City series, A Dirty Little Town, is now available. If you missed the River City sale that ended on the 22nd, well, you're going to have to pay full price, but uh, it's only $5.99. Also, I was fortunate enough to be a part of an anthology called A Bag of Dicks. Um, before you get offended, uh, that last word is uh, an apostrophe S, and uh, it is set in Spokane. This anthology uh, and it centers around uh, Dick's Hamburgers, which is a local institution and has a pretty iconic sign that you can see from the freeway Um, anyway it's a pretty cool idea uh, this uh, 509 anthology that colin conway put together Uh, there's an opening prologue that sort of sets the scene and all of the writers have to write their stories based on that scene that gets set but there was a lot of latitude I'm sharing the pages with uh, a lot of Wrong Place or Right Crime alumni. Jonathan Brown, Sarah M. Chen, uh, Scott Kakawa, Nick Kolokowski, Debbie Mack, Kat Richardson, Brian Thornton, Sam Weeb have all been on the show. Uh, also, there's uh, stories by Bill Fitzhugh and Jim Winter. Uh, and then I have one as well. Uh, the title of mine is Cold and Greasy. So I'm sure that sounds very appetizing. <laughs> Uh, there, there's some cool stories in here uh, by some great writers, so check it out. And I have it on good authority that the uh, book is uh, discounted for a little while. It just came out on the 22nd, so I don't know how long that will last, uh, but it won't break the bank no matter what. Uh, so check out these stories, discover a new author, follow the rabbit hole as far as it'll take you. That's a bag of dicks edited by Colin Conway, a 509 anthology. All right. I want to say thank you to Sarah for coming on the show and for writing an interesting book that I'm looking forward to diving into. Uh, Also to Down Out Books for sponsoring the show. And of course, as always to you, the listener, thanks for checking out these authors for spending time listening to the show. It is very much appreciated. Please do all the things you can to support it. Star, like, rate, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Subscribe, tell your friends about it. Anything you can do to help out is greatly appreciated. Uh, I enjoy spending this time with you and these authors, but every set of additional ears uh, only makes the experience better. All right, Spencer Fleury next week. Until then, this is Frank Zaffiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.